this is new to me and this is so far beyond what what, what I've heard previously because you've actually got data showing how the patient's jaw moves and you can demonstrate a difference in movement when the patient's in provisionals versus when they're in their definitive restoration. Welcome to the Dental Implant Podcast with your host, Pav Kara, your source of knowledge for all things relating to dental implants. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned something valuable. I hope. Yeah, this is podcast number three that I'm recording, and I am very honoured to have uh, Riazia, who's a specialist prosthodontist, joining me today. And uh, we are going to be talking with regards to occlusion and implants. Now, Riaz, we've bumped into each other a number of times on conferences, but we've never actually sat and uh, and and got to know each other better. So this will be this will be an interesting conversation. Um, so, uh, yes. if I understand correctly, you examine for the Royal College of Surgeons, and you've been head of MSc programs and things along those lines as well, haven't you? So, could you just? Tell everybody a little bit uh, uh, more about more about your background, so they know the quality of, of what we'll be getting today. Uh, I mean, I suppose from an overview perspective, I've um, I, I learn better when I'm being assessed. So, what sort of motivates me is is having a sort of structured way of learning. So, I've done a lot of exams over the years, both from a specialist perspective. So I've got my monospec in pros. Uh, I've done a master's in soft tissue around implants and teeth with Zucchelli. Uh, done other sort of research. So did my MPhil uh, and currently doing a PhD at the moment. Uh, so I've always sort of had an interest in both research and um, learning. So that's sort of a sort of brief overview. That's sort of my twenty-year career in a in a sort of nutshell. Uh, now, the, the key for me has always been, you know, how you implement what you learn, because it's easy to read a paper, but it's sort of can you apply it? Yeah, I mean, I think in that context, we're, we're quite similar because uh, I like to study hard, and um, and uh, for me, having some sort of structured learning is uh, is is really good as well. So, uh, in fact, it was it was Rudy who sent to me. He said, "Have you said you've done two podcasts? Not even introduced yourself." So I'm going to do a very brief introduction to myself as well. So I qualified in 2002. Um, I've done a lot of training in in in, in different areas. I went over to uh, America quite a lot to do a lot of uh, Frank Spears courses. I've done Mike Wise's course. I've done a lot of other restorative courses and it was about 2009 that I started to get into implants just a little bit and then I, I start, that, that's when I developed a passion for it and I started to learn more and ended up doing my MClindent in, in implants as well. So I've had quite a varied background, uh, heavily on restorative and then moving on to the implant side. And I think that actually worked in my favor because as you know, and partly what we're going to discuss today is, is all right doing implants. If you can't do the restorative, forget about it because you, you're going to, you're just going to end up with, with, with problems basically. So I think what we've done is we've briefly spoken already and we've said that this may actually end up being a two part 
two-part uh, podcast for us. So I think the best thing that we can do is probably just jump straight into it. And I wanted to, to hand over to you because I know that we've discussed that we've got a few things that we want to cover. And I think what I'll do now is I'll hand over to you so, so that you can make a start so that we can start to discuss uh, occlusion related, relating to implants. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's sort of biology has always both physiology and biology has always dictated my decision-making process for something to, you know, nestle in my brain. I've got to understand the biology behind it. And I think that sort of sits with you as well, because I know from what I've read, you know, your part, your, both your posts and the way you talk about things, it's always been, you know, on groups as well. It's always been, you know, grounded in basic biology knowing it in great detail so when i look at occlusion i look at both teeth and i look at the differences in implants um there was a great table that showed you know the sort of subtle differences between uh well they weren't subtle differences but key differences between teeth and implants uh once i understood that that started to dis help me decide what you know, what decision-making process I'm going to use implementing occlusion with regards to teeth and implants. Mm -hmm. That was one thing. Number two, looking at the patient as a whole, because there is no solid guidance, evidence-based guidance on occlusion and implants. There's, there's recommendations, there's guidelines, there's the ITI guidelines by Charlotte Stilwell, but they aren't steeped in any real evidence base um the studies on occlusion and implants majority of animal-based studies uh there are a couple of human uh studies but they, they they only show static loading they don't show progressive loading uh so the, the you know we know from my understanding and you may have read some of the papers that that, that may always help you know we 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 try and provide a protocol but actually you've got to look you know, at the biology, and then you've got to look at the patient as well. Yeah, I think with regards to that is, if you don't mind me just interjecting briefly, is is you're absolutely right. Is the the static occlusion is, is easy to plan. What's hard to plan is the dynamic occlusion, and I look at dynamic occlusion in two ways. It's the function. Plus, it's what happens over a longer time frame because teeth wear, you know, and, and the restoratives on the implants don't wear at the, necessarily at the same rate as what teeth do. So whatever you plan now is actually going to change over the longer time frame. So I do agree with you on that. It's, it's, it, it can be quite difficult to plan long term for these cases, but obviously that's why we're here to learn more from you. Yeah, uh, but but I think, we, you know, when we look at function with patients that have implants um, anyway, that their, their movements are generally erratic uh, and poorly controlled. Uh, so for me, the, the sort of the key papers by Svensson and Gregorius, his papers, you know, they, they showed clearly, a, you know, a, quite a difference in function in patients that, you know, we give full arch to. Uh, I recently did a case using Modjaw, and you know, I, I we've, we've immediately loaded the patient, and now he's been in immediate loads for six months, so he's now ready for his definitive. So I I modjawed him just to look at his uh, his function, and you know, his movements were very vertical, very little horizontal, 
Now that could be also, you know, his mm-hmm. his his central pattern generators, his movements have become restricted because he had problems before with his teeth, so he naturally guarded and then mm-hmm. giving him implants, we really haven't changed much. Uh, but it is interesting that when we look at movement, patients generally restrict the movement. Now, what I have noticed is that there are a small cohort of patients that don't. You give them implants and they still power a function and they literally destroy mm-hmm. your work. Um, they're the patients you want yeah. to spot quite early on yes. in your diagnosis and assessment because for those patients, I would design them differently. I would look at maybe an, an implant overdenture, for example, yeah. on a bar. And that way I could give them during the day a, uh, you know, an implant, a bar retained prosthesis. And then at night I can give them a stabilization splint on a bath potentially, or even just a soft bite guard, depending on the requirements of the patient. There are, you know, different designs for different patients. I mean, I think if we just sort of go back a bit and just start right at the basics, just so the, the, the guys listening can sort of, uh, you know, build a journey for them. Uh, you know, for me, the key sort of differences between implants and teeth are one, the sort of the modulus of elasticity between titanium and bone. So it's vastly different. I mean, we can talk about collagen fibril orientation and all that sort of thing, but actually the, the biggest thing for me is the modulus of elasticity difference between titanium and bone. Whereas with dentine, and you know, root dentine is the same as bone. When you apply force, you, the fulcrum is the apex. But in implants, when you apply excessive force, the forces are concentrated around the crest. So yes. it's it's that principle for me. Is I know biology will focus the force in the crestal region when it is on implants, whereas on teeth, it it sort of goes to the apex and it it can cause mobility. So from a static perspective, my process is I give them a static occlusion that I would give them, uh, that I would give for dentate teeth. uh, And Mm -hmm. I would only make it 20 microns lighter and then dynamic, I prefer group function. So I prefer to give them shared guidance, both in natural teeth rather than canine guidance, for example. Yeah, I'd I'd agree with uh, with everything that you've said there, and and that's that that's the same as what we aim to achieve at at, at, at Evo as well. So when we when we're doing our full arch work, is our aim is to go for um, uh, is is to go for group function, uh, purely and simply because is there, yeah. there there is no give in these prostheses, and the, like you said, it, it, it's that force concentration that happens. So when you're going through natural teeth, you have that little bit of play in the PDL, which which will actually. It will act as a shock absorber and give you that little bit of breathing space, whereas that's not the case with with with, with full arch prosthetics on implants. So you need to share that load as opposed to concentrate it in one area. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, just from a mechanical perspective, that makes sense. But you know, that, I mean, that's that's your full arch case. But what about single unit cases in a in a dentate arch? You know, how do you design the occlusion both? in static and dynamic number one number two how do you communicate that to the lab because there's a lab side 
that needs to make sure they're doing the same as you. Otherwise, you get a crown back. And if you know if they've not tightened the screw to the same torque, and then there's, there's also issues there because you know each time they use a, an old lab screw, it's not giving the same torque. So there's actually a lot of factors that we need to sort of address through the journey of the patient, just even for a single crown. Yeah. The the, the full arch cases are uh, yeah. more challenging. Uh, but you, you first got to, yeah. you know, we've got to nail how they can do a single crown, for example. So I'll, I'll sort of share with you how I do things. Uh, you know, fantastic. I was just about to ask, would you would you share how you do things? Purely simply because it's you're absolutely right from from a lab perspective. Quite often they they get a set of impressions, and it's like, can you make a crown? It's this implant system, and I'm not going to go into it in too much detail on this podcast because I've got others with regards to this. Um, but I order new lab screws, new prosthetic screws for for each and every case, and yes. there is a reason for that. And it's as you yes. quite rightly said, is components get worn if you're reusing things. And uh, particularly when it comes to tightening things down, if you're using the same screw that your lab used, the screw's strained and stressed already. You, you haven't got control right from the start and you're inviting problems. So if you could go over your lab process, that you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear that. That would be fantastic. Yeah, um, for me, the rule, I, I just keep it simple. One piece of articulating paper. It's the AccuFilm 20 micron. Uh, and what I do is, um, initially, I used to use two pieces of articulating paper. One was 40 micron and one would be 20 micron. And what I would get my lab technician to do is make sure he has a new sort of prosthetic screw, a new lab screw, and a new, obviously a new analog. So he's not using old analogs. He's using, for each case, there's a new uh, process. He will tighten the screw-retained crown. Let's assume it's a screw-retained one. He will tighten that down to the required torque for that implant system so i use astra ev it's 25 newtons so it's straightforward and then he will do any adjustments to the occlusion based on making sure that there's no contact at 20 microns but there is contact at 40 microns so i try and make sure that the crown is only 20 microns infra occluded so he yeah. does that so that when i then get it back i can then screw it down to that 25 newtons and then really there's probably a minimal mm -hmm. amount of adjustment required but i don't do shim stock hold i don't fold mm -hmm. it because for me that's too unpredictable i don't do the clenching test because if you get them to clench you only have that one opportunity to clench and it takes 30 minutes for the tooth to come back to its original um uh height uh so i don't do the clenching test because it doesn't make sense to me. I just basically do 20 micron lighter. I make sure the lab does the same. And I make sure there's contact at 40 microns in static. So I use one film and I, do, I fold it for 40 and I keep it single for 20. Yeah. And that's, and that's it. And so I give them a contact at 20 micron, uh, 40 microns, but not, not a 20. So it's 20, in my head, it's 20 microns light. Now, yeah, there is some issues sense. with that. But there is some issues with that. It's got to be watched because, as you know, when you tighten the screw down and you have that preload, then over time, several things happen. One, you start to get unscrewing very subtly. So the crown will start to automatically become super occluded anyway. And 
you're all going to have some adjacent wear of the teeth. So every year, I just do the quick test, 20 micron heavy. If it is, I just adjust it a little bit, and I always keep it 20 microns lighter through the journey of the patient. So how 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 does your process start to stay, change as you move away from single units towards bridges? So same process. Uh, if I've got adjacent teeth either side of a bridge, then it's straightforward. But I still I, I actually like to give um, full full contacts as if I was giving them teeth. So I assess the patient on their awareness. Uh, and if the patient certainly, you know, for me, if the patient is hypervigilant, for example, they are getting full occlusion like it was teeth. So it'll be 20 micron contact on all the teeth, even if it's implants. If that's sort of the rule for bigger bridges, so sing, you know, three, four units, I actually want them to have proprioception from their opposing teeth. So I keep it as if I would be touch, doing it like, dent, like dentate patients. I don't do it infracluded if I'm doing bigger, uh, bigger cases. So yeah, as I was saying, what is um, important for patients is that they do have some proprioception from the opposing teeth. If they don't, then some patients react. And I have seen it, I've got cases that show it. I've seen cases where the patient's been super occluded from implants and they've reacted to that. And the natural dentition was occluding against it. So I gave them the same occlusion that I would give them if it was a conventional bridge on teeth. I mean, what I've seen is that if you give a patient infracluded occlusion for bigger prosthesis, uh, what I find is that they do react. Uh, and the other thing is, I've seen, I've seen on, and I've seen it on the flip side, you've given super occlusion on implant crowns and they've reacted. To be honest, I hadn't thought about that um, uh, as much as what you're describing with the designing the the the, the crowns in 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 for occlusion and, and checking it on a yearly basis. Um, you know, obviously, I I I I mean, my protocol so far has been um, uh, to to build it into uh, occlusion, but make sure in all excursive movements that there is a uh, uh, that there's uh, that there's no contact. But obviously, reflecting on what you've just said with regards to you do get that loss of preload and adjacent uh, wear of the adjacent teeth. I mean, that makes perfectly sense. So, you know, that's something that I'm going to start immediately um, uh, uh, doing is 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 is, is checking uh, is obviously altering altering my lab protocols, but checking on a yearly basis as well. I mean, I've show I can show cases on it. You know, that's why I've I've seen it. You know, I've just I've I've actually just documented one case which I've recorded over sort of three or four years, and it's the same thing every year. They come in, it's uh, it's heavy, it's touching at twenty microns. So I just basically adjust it a little bit, and it's touching at forty microns. So I just keep it, and it, it, it's you know it's now four years, and there's no issue. The bone levels look great. Uh, I'm not saying that the bone levels are, you know, always necessarily related to um, occlusion because there's so many other factors, but at least I can sort of eliminate occlusion as one of the causes if, the, if a complication arises. So with, with this protocol, are you finding uh, fewer prosthetic complications as well, such as screw loosening, abutment fractures? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't want to touch fate uh, and I don't want to tempt fate as well. I haven't I haven't had one. 
yet. And I, I've been placing, I mean, I can't remember the last time I've, I've had a, yeah. the only, it's an, I used an Ostem implant for the first time and I did a cantilever bridge off it. Uh, and I gave sort of group function. And that one, it's an internal hex. So it's not a Morse taper. Uh, so it's sort of, that that does come loose um, every sort of 18 months. So it does sort of make me think, you know, with the with the Morse taper and um, the inter, the connection with Astra EV, I I uh, very rarely have a restorative issue. Certainly single crowns and, and bridges. Yeah, and uh, just in case there's anybody listening who doesn't quite understand the, the 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 term Morse taper, it means the connection between the abutment and the implant itself. That that the, the the taper of that connection is is quite narrow. So when when it all gets prosthetically screwed together, you effectively have a cold weld of the metals. Um, so it's uh, it, it's that that cold weld. The, the, the studies that I've seen from it is it allows you to place the implant subcrestal, and with certain implants, you can go two three millimeters subcrestal, and you get very stable bone levels. Mm-hmm. And it's because of that cold weld. Um, so that's that's just for anybody who's, who's listening who doesn't quite understand the term Morse taper, but obviously I appreciate there are probably those who do as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So with regards to uh, parafunction and bruxism, what are the things that you're looking out for then? Because obviously, you know, you, you, we've had some discussions on this on the uh, uh, in the past, and my. My treatment uh, towards parafunction, I look at it from a very simplistic point of view, uh, is what I, but my main thing that I'm looking for is I'm looking to see the wear facets and how things fit together and how dynamically everything's moving because that tells me kind of like what the patient is 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 doing it goes back to that dynamic uh, assessment that we were talking about so if you wouldn't mind talking through through uh, through through what you do with with with, with parafunctioning patients and how it may alter your treatment plans. uh so yeah i think the assessment for me is is really quite important so power of functioning patients you know I'm, I'm intrigued you know what's what 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 cause what is causing the power of function so i'll look more you know it's the, the sleep analysis uh i will also look at any sort of um, active signs of power of function so you know cheek ridging tongue scalloping with with cases that um patients have failed dentition it's it's obvious if a patient comes in with severe tooth wear that they're going to power function on your implants it's it's the ones that are a bit more difficult are the ones that come in with perio uh and they're not power functioning because the teeth the teeth are loose so i'm I, you know you you'll do a full i'll do a tmd analysis to make sure that there's no joint issues muscle issues uh i'm looking for masseteric hypertrophy i'm looking for uh and, and with the sleep analysis we do a sleep epworth score plus i look at their bmi i look at them as a whole because if i suspect that there is a sleep apnea relation then again giving them implants fixed teeth and they start power functioning it's just a recipe for problems uh, later on so i think we've got to mm-hmm. first accept that power functioning patients they are not as straightforward to manage as a patient who doesn't power function uh, and there's, it's multifactorial, the causes of it. And what we're trying to do in our assessment is spot those patients, 
what, what if I spot a patient that power functions, I am reluctant to give them fixed teeth. Or I'm looking at redesigning the dual arches and mm-hmm. maybe making one on a bar and maybe the other on fixed. But also I may think about a different material as well. I won't have zirconia against zirconia, for example. You know, yeah. I'll want to have some form of... Yeah. That's definitely a recipe. Yeah, and I think it's just you know once you've assessed it, once you've spotted the patient, my go. I mean, you're probably the same as me. Patients come to you when they've had full arches go wrong. You know, shattered porcelain. Uh, you know, broken restorative com- uh, components, and you you're looking at it. And you're going. I would have done that differently anyway at that point, but you know we know now we need to design their, their system differently. Uh, my, f- my preference with these patients is ideally a bar-retained prosthesis as an ideal because I like the fact that I can detach it. Uh, I like the fact uh, that we have a little bit of protection between both elements, but also we still get the improvement in quality of life. The patient still has the sensation of a fixed prosthesis. Uh, but we've got a we've got an additional protective element involved, so that's that's sort of my that's sort of my go to. Yeah, I think one thing you touched on there, which uh, uh, which is really interesting, and it's quite often overlooked because it's not really taught um, at undergraduate level, is uh, the sleep quality and uh, sleep apnea. And I don't know about you, Riaz, but what I've noticed is my patients. Are come, who are coming in, what I'm noticing is over the years, generally, systemically, they seem to be getting sicker, whether it's stress or poor quality diet, which is having a knock-on effect on their overall health. Um, you know, and, and you know, we, we know that stress increases parafunction, but you know, people are getting sicker, they're getting more overweight, which is increasing sleep apnea. And uh, what what we've noticed is there there has been a drop in 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 bone uh, quality, um, uh, particularly mineral density of, of of patients who are coming in. Now, again, this is a bit beyond this podcast, but I will be doing one later on. You know, the number of factors which are involved in bone mineral density is, you know, you're talking about gut bacteria, talking about psychological stress, you talk about vitamin D, talking about meprazole. Uh, I just wanted to, uh, to, to, to ask you, are you noticing the same trend as well, that people are coming in needing this complex work, but they're coming in more systemically disabled and harder to treat? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not just with implant patients. I'm seeing that trend with... Uh... Our, our normal dentate patients. Um, I think. I think when when you are stressed, your body reacts to that stress and needs generally needs some form of of energy supply. Uh, um, I think our decision making process uh, at the point when we're stressed generally tends to be a poor decision. We tend to you uh, take high sort of high carbohydrate gain or high sort of sugar gain to give us that feeling of improve, you know, uh, endorphin release uh, to try and counter obviously the cortisol and the stress. But then, you know, when your gut bacteria are poorly fed, 
then that ultimately has a, has an effect on sleep quality. There's um, the Australian group, uh, I've forgotten the name of the author, they've, they've shown consistently now that gut health and sleep are intimately related. Uh, now, if you're not getting enough good quality, you know, stage three or stage four sleep, and you're staying more within stage one, stage two, and having, you know, REM, then, you know, it's in stage one and two that we tend to power function. So it's, you know, Libizo has shown, you know, through his, his, his literature, you know, stage one, stage two, that's when we power function. If we don't get enough good quality stage three and four sleep, then we're going to power function more. Now, if you're not breaking your food down properly and not having the nutrition, so let's go back to, you know, not stress, but just actually an, a clinical disability with teeth. They're not eating, their, you know, breaking their food properly. Is that also potentially causing an, causing an effect of gut health, our gut microbiota uh, change. And then we, we, you know, that has an effect on our sleep. Uh, we then potentially power function more. Uh, so it is a vicious, it is a vicious circle. But, but I think us as sort of health professionals, we do need to be looking at the overall health of our patients, not just physical, but emotional and uh psychological help the health you know we need to be assessing all elements of them because you know it's it for me you know we can restore teeth but do we rehabilitate our patients uh, that's what i want to know yeah sorry mate i was just going to say based on on that one thing that we regularly do is we do the uh the ohip score which is a sequence of questions based yeah. around the patient's psychology and how uh, their, 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 how their teeth is currently affecting their, their, their life. And the reason why that's important is it is a psychological assessment. And this is used quite, as you know, this is used quite a lot in studies uh, where, where we're doing major restorative work for patients. And the, one of the reasons why we do it is so that we can see which patients have a severe disability that we're more likely to be able to help versus those who are just coming in just on the off chance, oh, I just fancy having something done, but it's not really impacting their lifestyle that much. And those are the patients that we want to be careful of um, purely from a point of view is if it's not really if affecting their, li their life that much and they have major treatment done, they're more prone to pick up things on the minor things that go wrong. Because they're like, well, I didn't have this problem before. So uh, I agree with you that psychological assessment is, it, it is very, very important. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's great to hear somebody else uh, talking about it. Oh, well. yeah. I mean, uh, the, you know, the quality of life, you know, uh, the quality of health and life-related statistics, you know, they're, they're, they're crucial. But it's still... It's still subjective. You know, when we think about occlusion, everything that we do is subjective. And I, I don't like that. I, I like I like occlusion to be subjective. Uh, not, not sorry, I like occlusion to be objective. I want to be able to record an improvement. So, for example, my sort of process is, you know, I look at EMG data. So I have an EMG machine. I look at module. I look at functional data. And I also look at sort of using the T-scan, I look at force data. So I can measure objectively what the occlusion is like. That, for me, is quite important. And then you've got to marry that up with your your subjective scores, which comes from the OHIP, which I think really is, is very important as well. And that way you have a real overarching sort of 
understanding of your patient, both from a subjective perspective, but also an objective. And I think also the objective data helps the patient just as much. You know, if you show them, look, this is your muscle data at the start, look at your muscle data now, we've got an improvement. That's really uplifting for the patient because they already felt it, but you've actually measured it. You know, you've actually said, look, there's your, you know, your impact yes. data on your muscle, for example, it was, you know, it's 60%, you're well below the threshold. But now look, we've got you, your muscle activity to 80, 90%. You know, that's fantastic. They, you know, that is a, a, an objective improvement. And then you marry it up with their OHIP scores. Wow. You know, that, I mean, that's, that's actually my PhD at the moment, but it's on DAL. You know, it's looking at both OHIP data you know, their subjective analysis of their teeth before and after, but also, you know, an objective analysis or, you know, both contacts, both digital, analog, you know, looking at how their contacts come together, looking at their muscle data, looking at their functional data, you know, these all sort of subject, objective measurements. And actually based upon what 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 you just said is obviously there there's a there's a big shift nowadays towards digital everything um you know people are moving towards you know digital articulators digital scanners um you know could could i get your 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 thoughts on 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 where we currently are you know is is the technology there is it good enough or you know is it actually better than analog or do they or do they do they do they both still have a role what are your thoughts uh, for me this may sound uh harsh but uh analog is dead you know it's 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 over digital digital is now yeah. i mean I, I, but it's not you know digital articulators you've got to understand how the lab are using your digital articulator how are they positioning the model without a face bow now i know you know idda for example have a digital face bow to help you position the models uh so there are tools out there but a digital articulator doesn't replicate lateral movement the condyle for example of the of the articulator is a ball yeah but our condyles are potatoes you know but they're just they're not the same the movie you know, so we we're trying to use a device that gives us inside inside out movements but our patients are outside in movements so I, I prefer the module. I think with the module functional, for, you know, it's a four-dimensional 4D tracker. I think that for me is now, you know, the gold standard for what, for what I do. But there is people like Javier Vasquez who does it with PSYCAP function, you know, and he is, you know, he's, he's, he's at a crazy level. Uh, but, you know, I find with the module, my muscle data and my T-scan data, I can now... I am far more accurate, far more um, objective with my occlusion. It's not, it's not, how are you feeling, Mr. Smith? Does that feel good? Yeah, that feels good. Okay, off you go. You know, it's, that was our baseline score with, you know, patient endorsement. Then it's, it, you know, it's good. Yeah. What's, what's the learning curve on these lines? Oh, man. I mean, you know what? You're, you're a geek like me. So let's be honest. You're going to love it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not a learning, it's not a learning curve. It's a journey. And it, it's, it's, it's a journey of discovery. And yeah, I love it. I, I love, you know, I, what I tend to do 
and this is again probably the geek in me you know i do my pre-data so i both do mod module functional data uh t-scan data all before then I've, i used to do it in provisionals but what i realized in provisionals was the patients were guarding themselves because they knew they were in prototypes so they wouldn't chew the same way they would narrow their function they would apply less force because sub subconsciously they knew the material was soft and it felt soft uh yes. but once i put them into their definitives mm -hmm. the motion changed you know so i could show both you know predata how they started and an improvement certainly in functional movement muscles and you know force management uh and what was interesting was there was a case that i did and i i, I did the module before and i did the module after and his jaw motion at the start was not too bad but when i put him into his finals on his uh, right, on his left side, his, his chewing motion really narrowed, became very vertical. So I started to look at what was causing that, and there was a there was a non-working site that I'd introduced. So when he was chewing on the left, he was hitting this right palatal cusp, upper six. And and when I asked him, you know, when he came in, I said, you know, you know, how are you doing? How's everything? He was like, I love it. Aesthetically, looks stunning. I'm really happy. But, you know, he didn't mention function. He never said, oh, I feel like my chewing is narrowed on the left side. It's only when I looked at the motion and the data and then I, you know, photographed it and recorded it and then I adjusted it. I was like, wow, okay, there you go. I mean, this is... This is new to me, and this is so far beyond what, what, what I've heard previously because you've actually got data showing how the patient's jaw moves and you can demonstrate a difference in movement when the patient's in provisionals versus when they're in their definitive yeah. restoration and based upon that data is you you really starting to narrow down on the the, the minutiae of issues which may cause long-term problems and you're managing to intervene intercept and deal with them before it becomes an issue is it is, is that right yeah have i, I got, mean I, i'm still early on so in the next i think by september i'll have my first case where i've done you know pre post and one year motion data to see how they've actually adapted to you know the definitive restorations after the year and i want to look at that i want to look at that data and go now you know that's a that's a big discussion because you know if the patient's going through a divorce at the time <laughs> the jaw motion may change not because when to do with the teeth it's going to be to do with the psychological state of the patient so that's why I've started to introduce the OHIP scores within it, you know, seeing where the patient is as well as just not just looking at the occlusion, where are they in life, you know, from a psychological perspective? Is life good? If life isn't good, then it's good to know that because it'd be interesting to see if their jaw motion changes when things are not good. I've shown it on a case with articulating paper. Uh, I did a... I did a, an upper arch rehabilitation. No, it was a, it was a upper arch and a lower posterior rehab. The only teeth I didn't prep the lower three to three. And I recorded the occlusion, both static and dynamic. Uh, at the time, I fitted the restoration. So I had good static and I had group function in dynamic. And then I left the practice. 
practice. Uh, I, I wasn't working there anymore. And then she sort of finds me about four years later. Uh, she comes in and she's got TMD issues. She literally, she says, you know, I woke up this one morning and I've got pain. And I've been in pain for about a month now. So I looked at the occlusal contacts at that point and all her contacts were heavy anterior, no posterior contacts. And a group, a, a guidance had all moved on to the pontics that I'd done on the bridge. So she had no group function, just guidance on the pontics. And so I didn't, I didn't make any adjustment. I just made her a splint to treat the sort of the myofascial pain, you know, with the other, the other processes that we do, but I made her a splint. Uh, and then I recorded the occlusion after the split therapy and the occlusal contacts were the same as it was, you know, five years ago, uh, four years ago. And so that in my mind was like, look, that just shows you how muscles change the contacts. If you treat the muscles, then you're going to have a more comfortable or a more reproducible position. Now it will change because life changes, but and teeth wear and periodontal ligaments move and so on. But uh, at least you won't have a major difference. It's more reproducible and more stable. Yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, that's obviously a good discussion to have with patients as well. Um, and obviously, the, the more complex the, the, the treatment you're doing for them, I mean, whether it's on implants or not, uh, but, you know, is then you're part of your of your informed consent can be you know what is your your mouth your bite even how you chew will change based upon the stresses that you're going through in life and as you were saying this you know if you can actually track the jaw movements and and, and you know during different phases of their life and relate it to an ohip score that uh, you know that i mean that's that that is comprehensive holistic patient care as it should be done so I mean I'm I, I mean I definitely want to learn more about that because that 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 just sounds absolutely fascinating you know I think particularly if we're doing uh, big cases you know that's that is that is very very impressive stuff. No, thank you. I mean it it is early on now and it's but it's it's so interesting. I think I've you know for me personally sort of on my journey I've you know you try and be a jack of all trades I suppose because. I suppose life dictates that to a point. You know, I always wanted to be good at everything, you know, pulse-wise, you know, dentures and so on. But I, I sort of slowly just realized, actually, TMD occlusion, that is something that I love, I'm very passionate about. And I'm just spending more time now, you know, looking at that, looking at, you know, the causes and treating patients more sort of from a, 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 a bigger perspective. You know, certainly... Oh, hips. I mean, we do we do the stop bang analysis. We do a lot more than we would do than, than most people because for me, what's important is I'm treating the patient as a whole. I mean, what's interesting in a conversation with patients you have, yeah, you know, we do talk about life in general, and you know, we I, I try and get my message across, but I tend to do it more in a sort of a jovial way, you know, sort of for example cars as an example you know i say look you know mm -hmm. at the end of the day your implants are a mechanical replacement for teeth just like a car is a mechanical replacement for walking it, it, it replaces one of the functions mm -hmm. now how you respect that how you uh, monitor that how you service that means that you're going to get wear and tear but i do try and stress the caveat that 
the car they only use two or three times a day, if that. Their teeth they're using, you know, 10 times, 20 times more. So they need to be more respectful of what we put in their mouth than they would be of that car. I will joke, you know, about it. So you've got a Ferrari now. You've got to maintain this Ferrari, you know. And so that way you're sort of planting seeds in their mind that this is something that has to be uh, respected. And that's probably my favorite word when it comes to patients. You know, I say, look, you just need to respect the work that we've done and what's in your mouth. Like you would respect that Ferrari that you've just bought. You know, you polish it, you clean it, but you've got the maintenance of it as well. Uh, and that's what they need to know. You take it for service as, as yeah. is required. And, whereas, and what's the irony of it is, is when as soon as they have their teeth fixed, they walk out the door, they don't even look after it, some of them. They just, you know, they don't look after it. They don't, they don't care for it. And then they yeah. come back and they go, you know, you're giving me a dud uh, implant. Like, no, you, you know, you, you know, you take the car out of the showroom you crash, bang, wallop it against the curbs and stuff. That's that's beyond wear and tear. So I do I do try and make sure they understand that. Yeah. So uh, for those wondering why we've all of a sudden had a change in lighting and, and why my position's changed, is because I dropped connectivity the other day when we were chatting. Uh, and so uh, this is a different day, completely different time. And I'm sat next to the to the internet writer. So hopefully we can uh, we we can get the last last little bit of information. Um, so Riaz, we were uh, we were chatting mate about um, about the module and how uh, uh, how how you checking dynamically the occlusion and how it helps with, uh, with, with, with your cases that, that you've noticed that patients, uh, will change their, their chewing patterns based upon whether they even know whether they're in provisionals and, uh, or, 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 or definitive restorations. And we were then starting to talk a little bit about, um, uh, about, uh, maintenance of these people long-term. And I think uh, the phrase that you use is, is, you know, when, um, uh, when you say to your patients, look, it's your responsibility to look after this, this is, this is Ferrari level work. You know, you would go to service a Ferrari. You've got to, you've got to come and have this serviced as well so uh for those listening would you mind going over what your uh, what your protocol is for maintenance of larger cases because we have touched on uh, maintenance of single implants so for larger cases that you're more concerned about what would be what would be your protocol so if it's a, an immediate load for large case uh then what i would do is give them a very sort of a a protected well what i notice straight away with patients that have immediate full load cases you know you give them the same guidelines that you would give you know be careful no hard food all the you know cleaning and all that sort of protocol what i did with those patients i've started to do a module on them and after when the implants have healed and we've got integration what their chewing is like is very vertical um so they basically have very little lateral movement. And that was because I feel that we've given them a not a locked-in occlusion, but we've given them an, occlu an occlusion which is purely statically driven, not dynamically driven. So what we're doing at the moment is we're test running, adjusting those provisionals to try and give a more dynamic movement and see if that, that improves uh, through the sort of additional last two months of that's so around month four of healing we're doing yep. occlusal sort of equilibration and trying to give them group function it's a shallower guidance so 
when I, if I, you know, was to show pictures of how I do direct in the, you know, definitive restorations on teeth, I try and, you know, I'm looking to see them shaped like teeth, you know, the cuspal yeah. angles and so on are like a normal premolar, normal molar and so on. Whereas mm-hmm. what we're giving them is a very similar occlusion that we get when we do an articulator, which is quite shallow cusp angles. Uh, the canine sort of palatal angle is the same as the the incline, the sort of the palatal incline of the buccal cusps. So you're sort of following a pattern that it makes it work in group function. Yes. Uh, the key as well is obviously diagnosis prehand, because, you know, if that patient, what worries me, and I had a case only yesterday, gentleman mm-hmm. sort of destroyed his natural teeth they then done endo post crowns and he's going, I want implants. And I'm going, hmm. And, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be an interesting one. He goes, and I want fixed. And I'm yeah. going, hmm. You know. Even this, more interesting. <laughs> even more interesting. I've got to write your letter today. And I'm, that's why I'm up this morning. I'm going, I've got to write his letter today. And it's thinking, yeah, I mean, there's caveats there. He's going to have to, you know, wear a guard some form of guard post-operatively with the caveat that if he doesn't you know he's going to destroy the teeth and i need to yep. make sure that i design when he's in prototypes he is the one that i need to give you know a lot of protected occlusion so sharing the forces is is the objective both in my finals so once i'm into mm-hmm. my finals i'm looking at group function now if you're going to use a cho- choice of material if you're using zirconia i personally don't like zirconia in full arch fixed cases uh for me yeah i for me i think they're just it's just too harder material it's too brittle and the the occlusion is very difficult to design in 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 zirconia looks amazing but actually it's 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 glass and glass when you put oblique forces on it it's it's very fragile you put compressive forces on it it's super strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, so zirconia can handle all the compressive forces of swallowing, but not really erratic movements of chewing. Yeah. And I think a big mistake a lot of people make with zirconia as well is they don't understand the material particularly well. Because um, uh, when it first came out, there was these uh, YouTube videos of it being smashed with a sledgehammer, and, it, and you know there was no damage done to it. In fact, it damaged the desk. Um, yeah. I think what people don't realize with with zirconia is yes, it does have crack deflection properties, but those mm-hmm. crack deflection properties will actually deeply over time, normally over a period of about four or five years, and that those crack deflection properties will reduce faster in a bruxist and in a warm, moist environment environment so when people start saying oh i'm doing monolithic zirconia bridges you know it's been fine for two years you know and i tell around and say to them of course it's going to be fine for two years it's the five-year mark we need to worry about and i've got another prosthodontic uh, friend in uh, in america uh prof lane ochi and he's of the same opinion as well he does not use zirconia um in in in, in full arch implants he said it, it, it for the same reasons he said it's going to fracture at some point he said i would prefer yeah. to use something that has got the chance of of of, of a much longer time frame yeah no no i agree i think uh, um, mark northover who's, who's done a lot of sort of these zirconia bridges so we're looking interesting i mean he might be doing a phd project on it as well 
I don't know if he is you know, he's talking about it, but it's sort of, you know, he's got retrospectively, I can't remember how many zirconia full-ass bridges he's done. And they have fractured. He has had a couple that are fractured. So it is interesting, you know, to see, you know, what occlusion they provide and, and, and you know, can it work in, in a mouth? I think it can work in a mouth where the patient is a very, um, you know, very... Um, vertical chewer, a very sort yep. of protected chewer. You know, that, that was always, that's always been my thing. You know, do we, do we restore or do we rehabilitate? I don't know if you know Francesca Valetti, you know, she was talking about this as well a couple of years ago. It's just, she's, you know, she was the one that got me thinking on that restore versus rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. How do we know we've simply restored the patient back to their, you know, original chewing function? You know, otherwise, you know, we've not really delivered what we meant to do. Uh, it's interesting. Implants, I think once you recognize that biologically implants do not, cannot handle the same occlusal forces. Yes, um, there was a recent sort of Facebook post, I think it was by Lucas, and he was, he put on, he showed um, the clip of implant occlusion. It was really funny. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, and he was just, he'd, he'd taken a cropped picture of uh, the Carl Misch's paper. You know, yeah. they put the, the, the guidance for occlusion in implants. Mm-hmm. And there was a table and it, most of the points were valid. They were all designed yeah. to be protective, shallow cusp spangles, all that sort of thing. It's like, fine, fine, fine. And then it came mm-hmm. to single implants and it said something along the lines of, uh, let me read it out. Cause I, I sort of, you know, it was, it was a debate that me and him at, uh, yeah. debate that me and him had. And it, it went along the lines of sort of, you know, he said, um, let me just quickly, I'll read it back because it was, it was quite interesting how we, you know, I, and I said, we were sort of, um, it was an open debate, nothing, nothing sort of um, critical at all. It was just, he put it on there and I thought, you know, that's right. So he sort of put it on uh, a post. It was, um, and one of the sort of the points was, you know, Light contact, this is for single implants, light contact, yeah. heavy bite, and no contact at light bite. Mm-hmm. So I know Lucas, Lucas is very precise, but that statement is so imprecise. It's yes. so subjective. What is what is that? So I sort of said, you know, that, you know, all logical points except that one point. So he responded, he said, you know, it tooth holds eight microns shim stock with light bite and heavy bite, but crown on implant, this is on teeth. So yeah. tooth holds eight microns shim stock with light bite and heavy bite, but crown on implant holds with heavy bite only. So I said, well, this isn't reproducible consistently. You know, ITI guidelines state, you know, sort of 30 microns lighter. And so he mm-hmm. was going, why 30? And I just joked, you know, best asking them. There's no evidence-based yeah. guidelines. Uh, we got back to sort of, you know, he said, I guess they prefer to be more safe. We want to disclude the implant for the amount that is equal to initial tooth movement. Mm-hmm. So between 8 to 30 microns. But uh, as you know, the thinner the paper, the more precision and so on. And I said, you know, I, th- those skills that you have, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's too many errors through the casting, through the preload when screwing, through unscrewing. Through you know you only have that that heavy bite clench you only have one go at it. Yeah. As soon as the patient clenches once, the teeth go into the periodontal ligament. It takes thirty minutes, anything up to thirty minutes before it uh, the teeth come back to that position. 
How how can you test that heavy bite once? The book of all day. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's sort of the you know you you sort of you you just can't sort of it's not reproducible. So right, anyway, yeah. it sort of stopped at that last point. But it, the issue was funny. It was just you know that was just something that we were discussing, and they yeah. were they were sort of calm guidelines from. 10 years ago i think it was 10 10 years 2011 yeah. i do recommend that that document is quite a good document on implant occlusion mm. the only issue for me is in static so for me if a single implants we i give them just an, a, a dentate occlusion and yeah. a patient who's power functioning I, you know i can try and give them 20 you know rule of thumb for me is no touching at 20 microns touching at 40 and it's yeah. just simple and then guidance yeah. dynamic guidance is shared group function all the time i don't give canine guidance on a canine implant for example yes uh, i just give them group function yeah it's uh I've, I've already spoken to my lab and told them <laughs> i want no contact at 20 microns and contact at 40 microns and uh, my, my lab technician my lab technician was like yeah fine not a problem but explain to me why and i, I said to him look there's a podcast coming out i said once he's out i'll send it to you so it's uh yeah i've already communicated that to my lab so it's uh the, the, i think I mean, just it's, it's easier isn't it i mean they've got it but the thing is they're doing the right thing with you already new screws he's got to yeah. t- talk it down to your talk you know yes. what are you talking it down to you're going to still have some soft tissue issues when you're sort of talking yep. it down because there's some resistance that you don't get in the model mm-hmm. so that's why it's still sort of you know things that we can't control that are in the mouth that you know the model you know the, the mouth is a warm environment you're going to get some degree of expansion of the of the crown and the metal underneath it it's very slight does you know if we're talking eight micron precision yeah you know how much does that crown expand in the mouth does anyone measure it you know i mean i, I mean this is the thing it, it, it it's about having control over what we can control and understanding the other factors that 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 we don't have control over and uh it, it's it's about trying to tip the balance in our favor and this is how i this is how i explain it to my implant patients as well so when i cover their risk factors i say look we don't have control over this and this but we do have control over this and this so i need for you to start doing xyz to tip the the, the, the balance in our favor and they understand it when you put it simply like that yeah yeah absolutely. i mean i think yeah. the biggest problem we have with with patients is our is not their lack of understanding it's our yeah. lack of explain explaining yeah. and if we if we shift the responsibility onto ourselves we you know we think of innovative ways of trying to get a point across you know and yeah. you know i even even with regards to certain risk factors that you know you can give them a an endless list but i i can say look you know I think I say, say, look, you know, do you know what it smells like? Um, do you know what New York smells like in summer? I said, you know, you sort of, have you ever sort of stood on Hudson River and smelt what it smells like to be in New York? And they go, no. And I go, okay, I can tell you what that smells like. I can tell you what it looks like. I can tell you all that. I can get you to visualize it. But unless you go and go there and, li- and actually yeah. have that experience for yourself, it will be a totally different experience for you than mm-hmm. it was for me i said that's the thing with risks i can tell you everything you know swelling bruising pain da, 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 da. but ultimately your experience of that will be different to the other patients that have had all yeah. those things mm-hmm. so 
you know, how you react to things is, is unique. Uh, and, and they get it, you know, they sort of have, you know, you do always joke about, I have a good, I'm blessed. I have a good relationship with most of my patients, not yeah. all of them, but most of them. Yes. I really appreciate you coming back on early in the morning. I think I think we're going to have to wrap it up because we could talk about this literally hours and hours and hours on end. Um, so uh, just a, 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 a quick question on behalf of anybody listening is if they wanted to learn more about ModJaw and uh, and your treatment philosophies on occlusion, what would be the best? What would be the best approach? How could they How could they start learning this stuff? And for clarification, for anybody listening, I've already approached Riaz and I've said to him, look, I need to learn more. <laughs> so hopefully I'll be, I'll be learning from him in the future as well. And that was just after a 45-minute chat. You know, you really opened my eyes. Uh, and I'm hoping that, you know, other people are like, yeah, I want to learn more as well. So if you've got a couple of minutes, if you could just explain that, that would be great. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, yes, so the way I try and sort of teach occlusion is, is, is a foundation and advanced level. So it's a two-day sort of foundation course based around the philosophy of looking at TMJ muscles and making sure they are healthy. And so that sort of bases it on TMD and then conformative occlusion. So how to just conform with a composite, single crown, and sort of the basic sort of restorative principles. The module for me is is sort of an advanced level because you need to buy that that equipment if you really want to learn about the digital aspect. Uh, and that's sort of done separately. I use the module for teaching because, you know, when I say group function, people sort of see it on a static model with the, the markings of occlusal paper. But actually, when you show them that when the patient chews, this is what we mean by group function, uh, you can replicate. You can see it's a visual aid. I find it a much more uh, effective visual aid for teaching occlusion. Yeah. Uh, and then the advanced course is about increasing OVD, how to reorganize, and that's a two-day course as well. It's for sort of small groups, so it's sort of a group of nine, um, and we run it in the clinic because that way we split you into groups of three and you basically alternate each other. And it's three, we've got three surgeries in the clinic, so you're basically nine people, and I can sort of give a, a more focused level of attention on all on all nine of you while you're doing the practical element on a on yourselves analyzing yourselves doing things on on each other and so on yeah. uh dates wise if you look on the um www com, that's the website then it's sort of dentist section and it's the education part it's all there so the next dates are may uh and we're slowly sort of booking up for that because i've only I've only just opened those dates up, so we're looking fingers crossed. If all goes well, first and second of May for the foundation, yeah. uh, and then the website has all the other dates on it. I'll put a link to the to the website in the podcast description, so anybody who's who's uh, watching it can uh, can take a little look there. Yeah, I'll send I'll send you the link actually, and then that yeah. way you've sort of then uh, it'll yeah. be easier for. Brilliant. Uh, yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for your time. So not, not only did you jump on with me late one evening a few days ago, you, you know, we've done an early morning session as well. And I think that's just, you know, the, that level of commitment to, to well, just do a podcast to helping out, uh, helping out a mate is just hugely appreciated. So thank you oh. so much. 
okay. yeah, thank you so much. And I said, I'll, 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 I'll definitely be in touch because I certainly want to learn a lot more uh, about this. So I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, I you hope too. those. Uh, yeah, I hope those who've been watching have, have gained a lot from this because I know I certainly have.